We'll take your Bible this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's already been a great day. Uh, seeing these baptism, worshiping the Lord through music, just being together as a church family. And we also have a fellowship later today. Many of you signed up for our churchwide Lake Day Fellowship. Look forward to that. Between here and there, we got a message to get into. We're going to finish up our summer sermon series called Actually the Bible Doesn't Say That uh, This Morning. We've been, each Sunday over the last several weeks, we've been taking a look and examining these different mythical sayings and thoughts and ideas uh, that people will use out in culture and sometimes can creep into our own minds as Christians that we assume come from God's Word, but when we actually look at God's Word, the Bible doesn't actually say that. So we've looked at several of those. We're going to look at another one this morning. But let me start with a game this morning. I'm going to give you a a line. I'm going to give you a quote from a movie, and you tell me what movie it's from, all right? This is a throwback, way back. Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. What movie is that from? Wizard of Oz. But that's actually not the exact line. Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore is the actual line. Here's another one. If you build it, he will come. All right, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. One of the greatest sports movies of all time, in my humble but correct opinion, Field of Dreams. But that's actually not the exact line. It's not if you build it, he will come. It's if you build it, they will come. How about this one? Luke, I am your father. Star Wars, and some of you nervously said that because it's like, oh gosh, I feel like I'm getting tricked now. But you are right, somewhat. It comes from Star Wars, but the actual line is not, Luke, I am your father. It never says Luke. Some of you Star Wars nerds know that. It's, no, I am your father is the actual line. You can look that up. Now, it's one thing to have a slightly altered quote in your mind from Star Wars, to misquote Star Wars. That's that's one thing, all right? That's not a big deal. Let me give you another one that is a little bit of a bigger deal. All right, let me give you another quote. Money is the root of all evil. Now, how many of you have heard that before? Money is the root of all evil. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, that's not from a movie. That's from the Bible. I know that that is from the Bible. And you're almost right. That quote is close to what the Bible actually says. In fact, it's just a few words off. But what this whole study has been about is to help us understand that every word that comes from God's Word matters. Every word that comes from God's word matters. So this morning, let's take a look at this verse that's commonly misquoted and let's understand what the Bible actually says here. And it actually has a lot to teach us. So let's stand with our Bibles open in honor of God's word as we read it. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So it's at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll begin to read in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world... We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. All right, here it is. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we acknowledge this morning as we come to you in the name of Jesus that you have way more important things to say to us than I have to say. So it's my desire, it's our desire that you would be our chief teacher, that your spirit would speak through me, that you'd protect this room from this man's opinion. We need to hear from you. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us, that Christ would be magnified in our hearts 
that he would be glorified in our lives as we hear your word, as we respond to your word, uh, specifically as it relates to how we view things in our life, like our money, like our material possessions. I pray that you would help us to honor you with those things. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a very important passage for us. Now, let me begin by saying this. Anytime the subject of money is even mentioned from a pulpit, some people can feel really uncomfortable about that. And maybe you experienced something growing up in a church or you've been part of a church and part of an experience related to that and something was mishandled. And probably if we heard your story, we'd all understand why you feel uncomfortable anytime that that's brought up. But money is actually something that the Bible talks a lot about. Right, there's over 2,000 verses in the Bible about money. It's something that Jesus talked a lot about. He talked about it just as much as he talked about heaven, just as much as he talked about hell. He had a lot to say about it. So, as disciples of Christ, because God's Word clearly addresses it a lot, and because it's such an integral part of our life, and I think that's the reason why the Bible addresses it so much, because the God, God's Word has so much to say about it, because it's an integral part of our everyday life as disciples, it's something that you've thought about probably already today. It's something we think about every day. It's something that we use every day. So we need to take time as disciples to seriously think about and consider how God expects us to view it, how God expects us to handle it. How God expects us to use it. All right, and this is a passage that, when correctly understood, uh, can really help us to do that. So, in this chapter, at the end of this letter, it's important to understand context here because we're just kind of parachuting in in the series into the end of this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, a young man that he had discipled, who's now pastoring a church that Paul planted in the ancient city of Ephesus. So, Paul is writing back to Timothy. That's what First and Timothy. First, Second Timothy are their letters that Paul writes back to Pastor Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus, and he's addressing a problem in that church. He's caught wind that there's a problem. Evidently, there are false teachers who have infiltrated the Ephesian church, who, as it says in verse five, think, as he says it this this way, godliness is a means to gain. These false teachers think that godliness is a means to gain. In other words, they see the Christian faith as something that they can twist and basically make a lot of money off of people with. It's not good. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Right? There's something called the prosperity gospel that is running rampant across the world even today. It's not anything. The prosperity gospel isn't anything new. We see it as something that uh, existed at the beginning of the church. All right, False teaching, tied to greed, tied to a desire and a lust and a craving for more and more money. That was alive and well in, in the church or in the evangelical world. A false theology of prosperity gospel was alive and well then. It's alive and well today. People peddling a false gospel, preying on the poor, making poor people more poor through that kind of ministry and making themselves more rich, fueled by greed. And the Bible calls it wicked. The Bible calls it evil. Now, in this passage, that's what Paul is directly rebuking. However, this is also a text that provides really important, really helpful teaching about money in our life, regardless of whether or not you're steeped in prosperity gospel teaching. Just because you're not a prosperity gospel teacher this morning, 
Hopefully you're not. Just because you're not a prosperity gospel preacher, just because you're not up at night, you know, watching like religious television, watching that internet uh, preacher or that television preacher, and just because you're not sending in your $10 seed, sowing your seed into their ministry so you can get your magic miracle hanky that'll make all of your problems go away and so that your $10 seed will reap a harvest of $10,000 in your life if you'll have enough faith. Just because that's not what you're wrapped up in doesn't mean that our hearts are not still capable capable of sinning as to how we view and handle and use money. So let's walk through this. There are lessons here for all of us to learn about something that we use and is a part of our everyday life that we continuously as disciples need to think about how we need to view biblically. So the first thing that this passage helps us clarify, or helps clarify for us when it comes to money is this. So as we think about money, our relationship to money, as Christians, here's the first thing this passage helps us understand that is supported by the rest of Scripture. Here it is. The love of money is the real problem. The love of money is the real problem. The point of this passage, the point of any passage in the Bible that teaches about money is to not make you feel guilty if you have some money. It's to not make you feel shame because you have nice possession. Scripture is full of examples of godly people who are blessed with a lot of money and a lot of stuff who are not condemned because they have money or just because they have a lot of stuff. Just to name a few in the Old Testament, Abraham. It says in Genesis 13 too that he was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. Think about Job. We often think about Job as uh, not having anything and going through really difficult times and serving as an example of what it looks like to endure through suffering. But before he goes through that, he's a very rich man and it says he was blameless. And then after he goes through that time of suffering, what does God give back to him? He gives him back wealth. Gives him back riches. Joseph became a very wealthy man in Egypt. David, as a king, was incredibly wealthy. In the New Testament, we find examples. We find Joseph of Arimathea, who stepped out as a disciple after Jesus died, who owned the tomb where Jesus was buried. He says he was very wealthy. Lydia, a woman who helped plant the church in Philippi, godly lady, says she was very wealthy. She was a business owner. So the Bible provides all kinds of examples of godly people who God used who were wealthy. And in the Bible, wealth isn't the issue. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth. The Bible doesn't present money as the bad guy. The Bible doesn't assign a moral value to money. It's actually amoral. In and of itself, it doesn't present it as good or bad. Having money, here it is, having money and owning nice stuff isn't a sin. What the Bible says is it's a sin when that money or that nice stuff owns you. It's not a sin to own stuff. It's a sin when our stuff owns us. Money is not the problem. It's the idolatrous love of money in the heart that's the issue. Paul says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That word love right there, that's a heart word. We understand that love comes from the heart. The passage is actually filled with phrases and with words that relate to the heart. Look at verse 9. Those who desire, middle of that same verse, harmful what? Desires. That word desire, it means to will, it means to want, it means to wish. And this passage is describing people who are eagerly longing, like obsessively craving internally to be rich. People who have a heart that's gripped by the belief that more money, that more stuff is going to be what ultimately brings more peace and more joy and more happiness and more comfort into my life. And that's an idolatrous love of money. 
That's looking to material things and that's looking to money to give you what only Jesus can. It's not a sin to own things and to have money, but it's a sin for those things to own you. For those things to have the affections of your heart that belong to God. For us to look to the things of this world, the created things of this world, money, material possessions as functional saviors. So if money and greed is what drives all of your decisions, the Bible would say that's a problem. If you you never let go of anything other than what's going to bring you more material gain, more personal gain, the Bible would say that's a problem. That's not how disciples should live. That's not how disciples should view money. If you're constantly consumed obsessively with anxiousness that's connected to the fear of losing money or because you don't feel like you have enough money, the Bible would say that's a problem. See, this is a kind of sin that's no respecter of income. You can actually have, you can actually be a lover of money in your heart. You can have an idolatrous craving and a desire to be rich with little in your bank account or a lot in your bank account. And the Bible would say that if there's even a hint of it in your heart this morning, it's a problem and it's a dangerous problem. That's the second thing we learn from this text. The love of money is the problem. Number two, the love of money is dangerous. It's a dangerous problem. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, uh, many uh, senseless and harmful desires, all right? Uh, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. In other words, the love of money leads you into a trap, is what Paul's saying, that leads you into other harmful problems in your life. Think about it like a gateway desire. The love of money doesn't lead to less problems. It actually leads to more problems. See, a lot of people are under the illusion, man, if I just have more money, man, if I just have more stuff, I would have less problems. But what God's Word is teaching us right here is that if that more money is attached to an idolatrous love of money and for money in your heart, it's not going to create less problems in your life. It's actually going to create more problems. Paul reiterates again in verse 10. He says, it's a root of all kinds of evil. Now, what are roots? do? We, we understand that. This is... These are letters in the Bible and the Gospels written to people who were in an agricultural society. Farming was a part of everyday life for every family. So there's a lot of agricultural metaphors and illustrations that are used. But we're not that society anymore, but we still understand some of the basics of, of nature and how things work. So we understand when we go out and we see a tree and we look up at the tree and the foliage is on the tree and you see the limbs and you see the green leaves coming out of those limbs. We understand that those are there because down beneath that tree are roots that are reaching into the earth and feeding that tree with the nutrients that it needs to grow. And so Paul, when he says root there, he's using a picture to help us understand that there are a lot of destructive sins that can surface in our life and that can grow in our life that sprout from and are fed by a deeper root sin called the love of money. Rebecca and I are, uh, we occasionally, uh, probably more than occasionally, we'll a drop in and watch an episode of Dateline. Ever, anybody ever watch Dateline or watch those kind of shows? I'm the only one in the room that watches Dateline. Okay. Uh, if you turn that show on for like 30 seconds, it's got you. You're hooked, right? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And the way they tell those true crime stories is they kind of have you guessing along the way. They kind of keep you hooked, right? To get through the commercial break or to fast forward to the commercial break quickly and get to the next scene. 
in the whole show, you're kind of guessing. And so uh, we're guessing, you know, I think it's a husband immediately, you know, or no, it was the secret boyfriend or no, it, or it was it was the friend over here. And so you're sitting there guessing. Um, but as we're sitting there chomping on popcorn, guessing who done it, it's easy to forget that this is a real story. Like this is a real story that happened to real people and brought real destruction to their lives. A story that involved like lying and stealing and deceit and murder, like actual murder. But it's not just about those sins in that story. See, very often under those sins of lies and stealing and deceit and murder is often what, and you know this if you've ever watched shows like that, is an idolatrous love for money. A greedy grasp for wealth. And because of a wicked craving in somebody's heart to get their hands on a life insurance policy, it was a snare that led into all kinds of unthinkable, harmful sins and wickedness and ruin and destruction. But here's the deal this morning. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Paul's only referring to like big dateline level destruction that happens in somebody's life because of an idolatrous love for money in your heart. There are tons of marriages that will fail this year and bring devastation to kids and devastation to family members and devastation to that family because of the roots of greed and the craving for for more money either in one of those spouses' hearts or both of their hearts. There are kids that will be neglected this year by fathers in homes across America and even in churches, sitting in churches like ours this morning because of an idolatrous love for money in that man's heart, a craving for earthly gain, a worship for money, turning money into some kind of functional savior, turning it into an idol. And the idols of this world, they require sacrifice. And often you'll see men, because of an idolatrous love for money, sacrifice their own family on the altar of success. Family members, and some of y'all have experienced this, will stop talking to each other because of an idolatrous love for money. Friendships can be destroyed for decades. Churches will split. People will pull away from church and even walk away from the faith, like it says in verse 10, because of a love for money. All kinds of destructive things in this world and in our lives can be traced back to the roots of an idolatrous love for money in the heart. It's dangerous. It's spiritually dangerous. Now, obviously, for an unbeliever, here's why it's spiritually dangerous for you. Because it'll lead you right into hell. That's what the Bible teaches. That's the ultimate form of ruin and destruction. If you spend your life looking to money, looking to power, looking to possessions, really looking to anything that's created under the sun to rescue you and to bring your soul rest instead of turning to Christ alone in repentance and faith and turning away from the functional saviors of this world, you will die. You will meet the awful reality that all those things may have been able to bring small levels of comfort to your life in this life. None of those things were mighty to save your soul from eternal ruin and destruction in the next. And if you are a disciple of Christ this morning who's allowed the love of money to get a hold of your heart again, it is a very dangerous craving. If not dealt with, it'll lead to larger cravings. It'll lead to big bouts of anxiousness and worry. It will consume you and it will lead to some form of ruin or destruction in your life. Not your soul. Because if you're a Saved, if you're a Christian, God's the one who saved you. He's the one who keeps you saved. If you're truly saved, you're forever in His grasp. The enemy knows he can't touch your soul, so he's going to do everything he can in your life to destroy as much in your life as he can and to bring ruin and destruction. And he'll often do it by 
luring our hearts off into a dangerous, idolatrous love of money. It may not ruin your soul, but it can easily ruin a relationship. It may not ruin your soul, but it can ruin a marriage. It can ruin your reputation. It can ruin your emotional stability and consume you with anxiousness and worry instead of you walking in the joy and the peace that God provides for you to walk in, that we're going to learn how you can walk in this morning. It can ruin opportunities to invest your life eternally in a way that matters 150 years from now. Instead of wasting time and wasting opportunities. There's a variety of ways that the love of money can invite ruin into our lives. There's a variety of ways that it can do that. But make no mistake, it will bring ruin. But it doesn't have to. That's the hope of this passage this morning. It doesn't have to. That's why Paul encourages, number three, to pursue a better way than loving money. How can we live free of an idolatrous love of money that leads to ruin and destruction? Well, if we back up to verse 6, Paul actually showed us that before he moved in and showed us the warning about an idolatrous love of money. All right, so how do we do that? Number one, he tells us first, here's how. Instead of looking for satisfaction in money, look for satisfaction in Christ. Instead of looking for your satisfaction in money... Be satisfied in Christ. Look again at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What is he saying there? Well, he's, he's using the words that he used for the false teachers and he's kind of turning it on its head. Remember, the false teachers thought that godliness was the means of gain. They, they were commercializing Christianity. They viewed ministry as a profitable business. Right, the best thing in life to them was making a profit, was making more profit, and they found a way to do that using the Bible. But Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. So he's turning what they said there, or what he said about them on its head. He's saying, the greatest gain in life, the best thing in life is walking with Christ. The best thing in life is Jesus himself, not using the name of Jesus to make an extra buck. The greatest gain is walking in the contentment of knowing Jesus and knowing that He knows me and loves me. Are you finding your contentment in Christ this morning? Let me ask you this. Is it enough for you to be loved by God in Christ Jesus? Is it enough for you just to be known and loved and accepted by Him? For the believer this morning, if you're satisfied in Christ, and that is a description of what's in your heart, that will serve an eviction notice to any idolatrous love for money in your life. But it's also, I want to say for a moment, that's the solution also for the person who's lost here this morning, who has a lost heart, who has a lost heart that manifests itself in the form, sin in your heart that manifests itself in the form of a craving for more and more material gain. For the heart that bows down to money and stuff as a functional false savior. Here's the good news of the Bible. You can be set free by the gospel from that exhausting pursuit of rest in this world that you'll never find in this world. You will not find the rest that you're looking for in earthly gain and in money. You won't find it there. What the gospel does is it provides you a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that will give you that satisfaction that your soul is looking for but can't find. You'll only find it in Christ. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 
I love this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. If that's not a verse you're familiar with, write it down. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, a gospel verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. That's the gospel right there. Jesus came, took on human flesh, lived the sinless life that we can't live. He died in our place on the cross, bearing the judgment and the wrath that we deserve for all of our greed, all of our idolatry, all of our sin. He bore it, all of that on His body, in our place. Jesus there dying in my place, taking the judgment that I I deserve, taking that judgment for my sin, the guiltless one dying in the place of the guilty. And then He was placed in a borrowed tomb. He rose again from the grave. And when you turn from your sin and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. He saves you. He takes up residence in your life. He becomes your Lord. He becomes your Savior, but not just your Savior. He becomes your strength. He becomes the source of your contentment. And He becomes the one that you you begin to love Him with your heart. You begin to seek to love Him with all of your heart. And it's a love and it's a passion if you're truly His that grows, that begins to dominate your life. And it sets you free from the love of money and materialism. Because when you come to Jesus, you begin to realize by that power, the Holy Spirit working in your life, that you've got no reason to love money. You've got no reason to worship material things because in Christ you're eternally wealthy. I have Jesus Christ. Which means, I have the one who is infinitely better than all the treasure in the world. He is all that I need. He completely satisfies the longings of my soul. So if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, and maybe you're aware of how exhausting it is to stay on that treadmill in the world, seeking satisfaction from the things of this world, come to Jesus this morning. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Leave that dangerous cycle of pursuing satisfaction in this world and find true rest in Him. And if you are saved this morning, remember who you are. In Christ, you are rich. Christ is enough. Be satisfied in Christ. That's the point that Paul's making here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 6 again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can't take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul's simply trying to help us see in a common sense kind of way the foolishness of loving money, of loving material possession and seeking satisfaction and contentment in those things that are going to rot that are temporary, that are going to decay, that are going to end up in a garage sale one day. It's been said, and maybe you've heard it said, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it. You won't be able to roll your 401 over into eternity. You can have the nicest car, you can have the nicest house, you can have the nicest clothes, you can have the biggest bank account, but when you die, it all stays. Paul says, you arrive in this world with nothing and you leave with nothing. That's true, isn't it? I was at the birth of all three of my kids. Nothing. They brought nothing into the world but noise. (laughs) Paul says, you arrive into the world with nothing and you leave with nothing. Therefore, follow 
logically what he's trying to help us to see. Therefore, if that's true, what sense does it make for me to worship, for me to freak out about, for me to be consumed with worry about, for me to pursue satisfaction in the temporary stuff of this world that won't last, that can't satisfy when I've been filled with, when I've been indwelt by the permanent soul-satisfying presence of Jesus Christ, who anytime I turn to him satisfies the longings of my heart, never fails to do that. Jesus alone satisfies. Listen, money can buy you a $3,000 mattress, but it cannot buy you true rest for your soul. That only comes from Christ. And if you're in Christ, that's exactly what you have access to. Money can buy you a nice house, but it cannot find you or buy you a peace-filled home. That only comes through Christ. Money can buy you expensive toys, but it cannot purchase you real joy. That only comes through knowing Christ and having Christ. And in Christ, that's what you have access to. Money can give you a comfortable retirement, but it can't purchase you the ability of dying at peace with God. That only comes through Christ. And if you're in Christ, that's what you have. He is our peace. He is our strength. He is our joy. He is our everlasting treasure. The problem is sometimes we get spiritual amnesia and forget that. Sometimes we can't blame it on spiritual amnesia. Sometimes it's just a blatant disbelief in that. It's a turning my back on that. To where I get to thinking like, hey, I love Jesus. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I amen that. I love Jesus. I know I need Jesus to some degree. I know he's going to be a big help to me. But what I really need to alleviate, alleviate the stress, what I really need to give me some peace, what I really need to make me happy is a few more zeros in my bank account. That's why some of y'all bought 47 mega million tickets this past week. That's why some of y'all bought 73 Powerball tickets a few weeks ago. You say, well, no, Pastor, for me, I'm, I, I support education, and that's the reason why I bought those tickets, because I want to support scholarships. Okay, okay. No, let's just be honest. Deep down, there's a love for money that can easily creep back into our heart to where we think, And if I just had a little bit money, a little bit more money, that's what I need. If I just had a little bit more of what I already have that really isn't giving me the rest that I know that that I thought it would give me and it's not giving it to me. But if I had a little bit more of what I already have that hasn't been able to give me the satisfaction that I'm looking for, then I'd find satisfaction. Doesn't that sound crazy? And that's what we do. Jesus is all that I need. It is enough just to be loved by Him. He is my peace. He is my treasure. And if you truly believe that, if you truly rest in Him deeply, then you're able to say, are you able to say this with your heart? Without Him, I have nothing. But with Him, I have everything. Even in this world, if materially speaking, I have nothing. Let me say that again. Are you able to say with your heart, without Christ, I have nothing. But with Him, I have everything. Even if in this world, material, materialistically speaking, I have nothing. If that describes your heart, that allows you to walk through this life with a freedom and with a joy like you're not going to find anywhere else in this world and it actually causes other people to look at your life and to marvel and wonder. and gives you an opportunity to point them to your greatest treasure. Paul's saying, stop loving money. You already have the greatest treasure in Jesus Christ. Be satisfied in Him. When you're satisfied in Christ, it'll solve a lot of different sin problems in your life. And it'll solve this one. 
If you're truly satisfied in Christ, it is hard for an idolatrous love of money to stick to that kind of heart. And a contentment in Christ, it keeps us free for a love of money. And it produces in us something else, and that's generosity. So how do we pursue a better way than loving money? One, instead of looking for satisfaction in money, be satisfied in Christ. Number two, instead of loving money, now love leveraging it for the glory of God. So be satisfied in Christ. And when you're satisfied in Christ, what you'll find is it'll start causing you to hold on to the things of this world more loosely for the glory of God. Later in this chapter, Paul helps us understand what that looks like. Look at verses 17 through 19. We don't got time to deal with everything here, but let's draw out a few truths as we finish up this morning as we lay in this plane. He says, as for the rich in this present age. Now, some of you are like, well, that counts me out. I'm definitely not rich. Well, just keep in mind that every, probably, probably everybody in the room compared to the rest of the world, in fact, 97, 98, maybe higher, 97, 98% of the rest of the world would look at you and what you have here in America sitting in this building right now, and they would see you as rich. So we all qualify. The first part of this verse applies to all of us. It's a matter of perspective. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hearts, their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides with everything to enjoy. They're to be good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and to, uh, to re- be ready to share. The storing up treasure for themselves is good, as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What Paul's doing here is he's saying, stop Stop loving your money and start loving using your money for the glory of God. Stop loving your things and now start loving to leverage your things in a generous way for the glory of God, for something outside of yourself, for something that will matter 150 years from now. When we are satisfied in Christ, when we're walking close to Jesus, when we become generous disciples, our vision becomes unclouded. We start to clearly see some things right here that will fuel our generosity. We start to clearly see some things right here in verses 17, 18, and 19 that will fuel our generosity and make us hold on to things more loosely for the glory of God. First thing you'll begin to see is this, that everything I have comes from God. You'll be way less selfish of what you have because you'll realize it's because of God that I have it. And when I understand that it's His desire, the one who gave it to me, to use it for His glory... And to use it in a way that's selfless, that's investing in the kingdom of God. And help, helping propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll begin to hold on to it more loosely. Notice what he says there. He says, the way he describes God in those verses, God who richly provides us with everything. All right, so everything I have is a gracious gift from a gracious, loving, generous God, not to be hoarded but to be leveraged ultimately for His glory, to be stewarded, to be shared for the glory of the giver of that gift. Let me ask you this this morning, the breath that you got in your lungs this morning. You probably even haven't stopped in the last 30 minutes to think about. As you've inhaled and exhaled, the breath you got in your lungs this morning, who gave that to you? The time that you have today, that we can often take for granted, who gave you that? The money in your possession, the belongings that you have, even the food that you'll eat today, who gave that to you? God did. And it's His will to leverage everything in my life for eternal purposes. It's His will that I leverage my resources to help spread the gospel so that others can know Jesus as their ultimate treasure. 
See how it works? Jesus is my ultimate treasure. Causes me to hold on to things loosely so I can bless other people's life. So that I can help move the gospel and advance the gospel forward for the glory of Jesus Christ. So that they can see Jesus as their ultimate treasure and do the same things themselves. Now, here's what this does not mean. That does not mean that we just give everything in our life away. Some people will take this and they'll run that direction like it's a bad thing to own anything. It's a bad thing to have anything in your life that's nice. And that's kind of headed down to what we, the, the path of what we call a poverty gospel. Prosperity gospel is wrong and a poverty gospel is wrong as well. That's not the kind of biblical generosity the Bible calls us to. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. In fact, and enjoying those things. In fact, look at that next verse. God who richly provides with everything to what? Anybody looking at their Bible? God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God loves to give good gifts to His kids for them to enjoy those good gifts. A good father loves to watch his kids enjoy the good gifts that he gives them. You dads who maybe gave your son when you're 7, 8, 9, 10 years old that BB gun that he was looking forward to get and you're watching him on Christmas morning open that gift, he's smiling and you're, you're just as giddy as he is. You love to see your kids receive gifts and not just receive the gifts but appreciate them and delight in them and enjoy them. God loves to see you enjoy his good gifts that he's blessed you with. God is glorified when you bite into that sizzling, medium, rare, roost, crisp, ribeye steak as the goodness of God bursts alive on your taste buds. Some of you are like, really? He had to, I was already hungry. Why did he just do that right now? Finish this up so I can get the lunch. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying nice things. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are good gifts from God meant to be enjoyed. There's nothing wrong with saving. In fact, that's a part of being a good steward of what God's given you. But just always remember that biblical stewardship isn't just about enjoying. It's not just about saving. It's also about sharing. It's also about holding on to my earthly resources with a loose hand, being generous, not just with money, with my time, with my talent, and with my treasure that God has blessed me with. He gave it to me. And he's asked me to, yes, enjoy it, to, yes, be a good steward of it and to save, but to also share. Generosity is fueled by remembering everything I have comes from God. It's seeing that everything I have, all my possessions are stamped with the message gifted to me by Jesus to be stewarded for his purposes and his praise and his glory and his mission. Number two, when I'm satisfied in Christ and he's my treasure, it also helps me clearly see, and this fuels my generosity as well, the reality that this world is not my home. Look at verse 19, the storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. God wants you to have a futuristic view of things. He wants us to understand that this life that we're living, it has a beginning on this earth and it has an ending. And then it goes on forever. On every tombstone, all of us understand this, there's a birth date and then there's a death date. Now, all of us in this room have a birth date. And unless Jesus comes back, each of us one day on a tombstone will have a death date. And you know what? In the middle of that's going to be this little dash that represents our life. Think about that. Your little dash right there that's still being written, that you're still living, one day there's going to be an ending to that. There's going to be a date on the right side of that. Now think about that little dash right there and think about that, that little dash. And now I want you to think about that dash compared to a string that in your imagination you're going to stretch out into the universe for a hundred million light years. Dash, string, 
going out into eternity for 100 million light years. That doesn't even begin to illustrate the brevity of our life and our time on this earth compared to the time we'll spend in eternity. The way we steward our stuff, the way that we view our money and use it and handle it and think about it should demonstrate that we believe that that's true as Christians. Randy Alcorn said this, and you've probably heard this from financial planners. Financial planners tell us when it comes to your money, don't just think three months ahead, think 30 years ahead. Have you heard that before? Christ, Randy Alcorn says, the ultimate investor investment counselor, takes it further. He says, don't ask how your investment will be paying off in just 30 years. Ask how it will be paying off in 30 million years. We live in a nation filled with millions and millions of people who spend their life making investments so that they can retire comfortably in this world. You say, well, what's the problem with that? Nothing. I'm not saying anything's wrong with that. I'd argue that that's actually a demonstration of wise stewardship. I set aside a monthly portion of what God blesses us with for my own retirement. Nothing is wrong with that unless. Nothing is wrong with that unless that is the predominant investment activity that marks my life. And it's scary to think about how many professing Christians are going to retire comfortably and then sail off into their ultimate retirement aka eternity with nothing because you haven't invested in eternity and you're going to die and you're going to stand before God having leveraged so much of your life and so much of your money and so much of your resources for here but it doesn't have to stay that way Especially as a satisfied disciple, if, if your vision becomes unmuddied and you begin to really believe that this world's not my home, so why am I living for this world? Why am I so tied up into the things of this world? It doesn't make sense. It's like checking into a hotel for a two-night stay and then emptying your bank account to put in new flooring and to put in new furniture and to remodel all of that. They're going to haul you off to jail and then somebody's going to ask you why they're putting you in a police car. What were you thinking? You're only staying there for two nights. That's not your home. What a waste to invest all that you have in a hotel room like that. And we hear a scenario like that and we say, how foolish would that person be? And yet we can't sometimes see how foolish it is for us to settle down into this world like it's our home. And to invest so much time and invest so much talent and invest my, my treasure in my life here. Instead of eternity. And number three, when I'm satisfied in Christ and He's my treasure, it also helps me clearly see one of the other things in God's Word that really is the main thing that fuels my generosity more than anything else, and it's the gospel. It's not right here in these verses, but it's all over the New Testament. John 3.16, a very common commonly known verse says for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life church the gospel is what ultimately makes us generous we can't seriously think about the gospel and the generosity that God has shown us by giving us his son by dying for us giving us his son's life so that we can live we can't think about the gospel and how God emptied heaven to make that sacrifice in our place on that cross. And to not just raise us to new life, 
but through His generosity to conform us more to the image of His Son, to give us the rest, to give us the peace, to give us all of those gifts. He's a generous God. You can't seriously think about the gospel as a disciple of Christ and it not turn you into a generous person. Church, the reason we steward our resources for eternity, the reason why we hold on to things loosely for the glory of God, the reason why we gave over two thousand, why we give offerings, why why we gave two, over two thousand dollars to First Coast Women Services from the offering that we just took up that you gave generously, the reason why we as New Testament believers give money to help fuel the mission of our local church that we're committed to, the reason we as a church are committed to hold on to things loosely as a ministry and to give thousands and thousands of dollars annually annually to local and to regional and to global mission work, the reason we are generous beyond money, why we leverage our time and our talent for eternity, why we spend our time not just on ourselves, but we invest generously in the kingdom of God through serving others, through meeting needs, through taking time to make disciples relationally. The reason we are generous is because of the gospel. It's because the one who is our Lord, though he was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. Schindler Drive, may we never be known for our love of money, but for our love for God and for people. May we be known as disciples who are content in Christ, who say it is enough just to be loved by God in Christ Jesus, who love to enjoy the gifts God gives us, but who also, fueled by God's generous love for us in Jesus, love being cheerful, generous disciples, who hold loosely to all, gladly, cheerfully hold loosely to all that God has given us, leveraging it for the glory of God. And so that more people can know Jesus as their treasure. Let's pray this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, the problem in every human heart, and I came into the world, and every person in this world, in this room, came into this world with this problem is sin. And our sin separates us from God. And for some of you, you're separated from God in your sin, and your sin has tended to manifest itself in the form of a love for money. Now, up to this point in your life, if you're honest before God this morning, you've kept your knee bowed to that functional Savior, thinking that it was going to give you the peace and the comfort and the joy that your soul is longing for. It may not be manifesting itself in that form. All of us are sinners, and it manifests itself in different ways. But for some of you, it may be that. This morning, here's my plea to you. Run to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior who saves our souls, forgives our sins, and frees us from a love for the things of this world as we see Him as our greatest treasure. Disciple of Christ this morning, maybe you need to repent of bowing down to the idol of stuff or money. Look to Jesus. Be satisfied in Christ. Commit your life to being generous with the time and the talent and the treasure God has given you for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel. For some of you, and we have a very generous church, praise God for the generosity that we've seen in this church. 
with the way people steward their time and their talent and their treasure. What I'd encourage you to do is to to make sure that all of that activity is flowing from the right kind of heart. God doesn't just want us going through the motions and going through the right routines. He doesn't want our checklists. He wants our heart. So be satisfied in Him. Run to Jesus this morning. See Him as our greatest treasure. He is enough. And with your eyes fixed on Jesus, let's get all of our hearts aligned in the place that it needs to be. Do we simply want to go out of here and be generous and be on mission and live for Him in light of what He's done for us, in light of His generosity?